49 to St George's Hill A ragged band they called the diggers came To show the people's will They defied the landlords They defied the laws They were the dispossessed Reclaiming what was theirs We come in peace they said To dig and sow This is a stand-down order issued by the International Common Law Court of Justice and the Common Law Court of Canada Criminal Trial Division. The stand-down order is issued this day, June 1st, 2017, against the fiduciary officers, agents, and clergy of the following corporations, the Roman Catholic Church, the United Church of Canada, and the Anglican Church of Canada. You are hereby ordered to stand down and refrain from engaging in the collection of any monies for your corporation or from administering funds or properties of your corporation on the following grounds. One, you represent convicted criminal bodies that have been found guilty under international law of genocide, child trafficking, and other crimes against humanity, and therefore have no legal right to operate or gather revenue. Two, you are defrauding Canada and its taxpayers by misrepresenting your corporations as lawful and charitable Christian societies, and thereby you are falsely claiming tax-exempt status under the Income Tax Act. And three, you and your corporations have been ordered to cease and desist from your operations and to vacate your illegal occupation of Indigenous lands across Canada by duly registered court orders. If you fail to abide by this order, you can and will be arrested, charged, and tried in our common law courts as an accessory to a crime. Issued June 1, 2017, by the Common Law Court of Canada. And welcome to Radio Free Canada. I'm your host, Kevin Annett. Welcome back. It's July 16, 2017. Yes, we are live again, as always, here on the territory of Canada. I begin today with the words from my ancestor, Peter Annett, from England, 1761, when he wrote, We shall expose the hidden works of darkness and drive falsely to the bottomless pit. He was referring to the Church of England and the Crown of England, but we are continuing his work. 250 years later, the crime continues. And our struggle continues. Well, today is a memorable event for me. It's 25 years this week, 25 years ago this week, that my young family and I went to the coastal town of Port Alberni, where the whole story, the whole saga began of exposing this crime of genocide in Canada. I'm going to mark this day by reflecting on some of the great lessons, victories, and other experiences we gained over the last 25 years, which have rocked Canada and the world. We have exposed Canadian institutions as genocidal. We have exposed their sponsors in Rome and London, forced one pope and three cardinals to resign, and established a new jurisdiction of the common law by which these criminal bodies can be put on trial and stopped forever. But that, of course, is up to you and me, we the people. There's no savior who's going to come in and do it for us, people. It's going to be us. And that's a constant theme on our show. Today I'm going to have as my guest Rachel Aird. She's a journalist from London, Ontario. She was actually on our show on June 18th, talking about the child trafficking and satanic networks in London, Ontario, one of the main areas of um, child trafficking and also human disappearances in Canada. We're going to, uh, we got into that. We're going to be touching on, a, on that again today. But I've asked Rachel to come on as a journalist to have a dialogue with me about how these this whole story came about over 25 years, how it persisted, how we won in a very basic way in bringing this truth to light and helping countless people. She's going to be on in a minute. You know, I'm reminded as we talk about this that uh, there's a saying from someone, 
<laughs> I can't remember, but it's that all history is biography. You can't really understand history and where we've gotten without looking at the lives of the people involved. And I'm thinking 25 years ago now, I've actually got a picture in my hand, and there's a picture of me with my two young daughters uh, on Long Beach near Tofino. We had just arrived that same week. My daughter Eleanor had been born on July 8th, so here's me holding a little week old Eleanor in my arms, sitting with three-and-a-half-year-old daughter Claire on the beach. Their mom Anne was taking the picture, and we're all sitting there. And I was looking at that man and wondering, just, you know, how could I have been that naive? How could I have been that ignorant and complicit? I was 36, you know, happily married, happily assimilated, if you like, into the mindset of the culture, not aware of the fact that the church that I was working for, the United Church of Canada, had so much blood on its hands. Not able to yet look at the question of how is it that these Anglican, Catholic, and United Churches, for over a century, systematically starved, raped, and murdered over 50 to 60,000 Aboriginal children, decade after decade, not as one incident, but decade after decade, without a qualm, business as usual, and then only were forced to address it only after they began to get sued in court, and after that, concealed the whole thing up, and are now today carrying on like everything is fixed. It's really not a question of it being unjust, brothers and sisters. It's not a simple question of injustice or hypocrisy. It's sheer madness. The people responsible, whether at the top or at the lower levels, sitting there on Sunday today, singing their nice hymns, contributing to these child trafficking and murderous institutions, they're crazy. They're dissociated. And that's the another theme of our show. We have to recover our own minds, our sovereignty, or we'll continue to persist in that complicity. And for me, that picture sums it up. Um, I didn't realize the extent of my complicity then because I was immersed in it. I've come out of that. And unfortunately, it's taken a lot of suffering and pain, but I think that's often the way it is. There's another nice quote I like, and that is, we're all born dead souls into this world. We only become alive as souls through suffering for what is right. And I think that that's really a statement of my life for the last 25 years. So I am thankful now for all of the suffering and all of the things thrown at me because it helped open my eyes and it's helped save many lives. So when next time you're tempted to feel, you know, oppressed by everything being thrown at you, you think you're alone, you think you're being targeted mercilessly and you're going to lose, it's part of your waking up. Because I don't think, you know, whether you call it God or the universe, I don't think creation wants us to be happy necessarily. I think creation wants us to wake up and not be complicit anymore. And this is the way it happens. So I'm really quite happy to be talking about this today with Rachel Laird. She'll be on any minute. Uh, but before that happens, I want to remind you that in the recent books we've published, all of this can be, all the hard evidence can be viewed. Of course, the main work over 25 years, Murder by Decree, The Crime of Genocide in Canada, the hard evidence, the documentation, the eyewitness testimonies, all of the stuff that proves that genocide in Canada was deliberate and is still carrying on today, murderbydecree.com, you can read it online, order it at Amazon for 20 bucks. My recent book, Fallen, the story of the Vancouver Four, also you can get that at Amazon. Just put in Kevin Annett, A-N-N-E-T-T. It tells the story of my four friends, Harry Wilson, uh, Bingo Dawson, Ricky Lavalley, and William Coombs, all of whom murdered by the church and government and RCMP for speaking out about these crimes, four of our fallen heroes in Vancouver. So you can get that online at Amazon as well. Um, for uh, actually very cheap. 
between $10 and $20 for all of the books and made it affordable so that you can get this into the schools, into the curriculum, so the next generation will not be complicit as we have all been. And finally, one of the things we're going to be talking to Rachel about today is the, the fact that the ongoing nature of these crimes, there's a continuity of crimes. The same people who were trafficking and harming those children are still doing it today. For example, the uh, policies in Vancouver hospitals of do not resuscitate Native people when they're in a life-and-death situation. The BFA protocol, so-called Baby for Adoption protocol, where pregnant mothers, especially if they're Catholic, uh, young mothers, are targeted to have their baby trafficked to foster care agencies and others by the Catholic Church and its Providence health care system in Vancouver. The fact that the Canada Revenue Agency is targeting anyone who's criticizing them and this we have from insiders and other sources. The income tax people are targeting anyone who speaks out against the CRA as an offshore private corporation illegally getting money off Canadians. Now, this concerns all of you because you're paying the taxes. You're being ripped off. All of these policies carrying on today. And I was just um, speaking over the last few weeks to a, a fellow who was targeted for trafficking at a very young age, a native guy from up in Prince Rupert. He just happened in his counseling to say that, you know, in frustration, he said, I'd like to just go after the guy who did this to me. That same hour, the RCMP showed up and incarcerated him in a mental institute because of the possibility that he might go after his child rapist, uh, who was a very prominent man in Prince Rupert. And we're going to be talking about that story. So these are examples of how the crime is carrying on today. And, um, and so we're, um, you know, very conscious of that fact now. Now, I know Rachel is with us, so without further ado, uh, uh, we're going to go to her. Rachel, hello, welcome. Hi, Kevin. How are you? I am great. It's been a good 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it sounds like it has been. Now, I, I, I well, was just giving the folks a little bit of an intro and asking that as a journalist and somebody who in many ways have had uh, similar kinds of parallel experiences in her life, when you hear my story and you hear about all this truth, um, what are some of the questions you had, just as, as a knowledgeable person, somebody who is concerned about crimes in their own backyard here in Canada? Oh, sure. Uh, that's a great question. And um, before I answer, I just wanted to, to tell you, it really is an honor and a privilege to be able to um, speak with you today, to honor you know, 25 years of, of this um, journey that you've been on. And, um, and I'm also really grateful that there's a, a radio show that creates this uh, platform for people to, um, to speak and, you know, grateful to the listeners that are listening today and, you know, um, on the recorded show in time as well. Um, Thank you. So you asked just about my, um, you know, my thoughts as a journalist and, and um, I just can share that what's really interesting where our paths crossed um, in the 90s was that um, right when... So in 1992 is when you moved to Port Alberni and where your story story started. By 1998 and 1999, um, the rest of Canada started to pick up on the story and was um, posting it in the Globe and Mail and other other news. So there was an event um, that you participated in. It was February um, 1998, and um, that was reported in the news. It was you know you had 600 people that was that were in Vancouver for this public rally. And I read that I read that article and I thought, you know, something is really unique and radical about what this group is doing and it um it just really piqued my interest. Um well, 
it, so, good, um, yeah. did, did you want to speak a little bit about, you know, maybe those, those beginning days, sort of how the story started for you in 1992 and um, how that sort of changed your course from what you, what you thought might be happening when you moved there? Well, I know, you know, the story's been told a lot. If people has, have seen Unrepentant and that, they know that um, getting there as a minister, uh, naivety, I often say, you know, Rachel, naivety is, a, is, is a, an advantage sometimes, because if we were really aware of what we're walking into, no sane person would do it. You wouldn't walk in knowing you're going to lose your, your family, you're going to be blacklisted. And so in our ignorance, we can open the doors we wouldn't if we were more erudite people about the situation. Um, and mm-hmm. that was definitely my, my case. I very naively, I thought, okay, we're supposed to be Christians here. I follow and love the words of Jesus. I'm going to open the doors. We're going to bring in the natives. And right. literally the first native who began talking to me mentioned about his best friend being beaten to death at the Alberni Residential School, run by my employer. And um, mm-hmm. I remember when that happened to me, my first reaction was, can't be. I mean, I was raised in the United Church. We used to send care packages to Haiti. Um, we used to work for the, the homeless. I mean, how can this have happened? But person after person told me, and I began to find documents and letters to confirm what they were saying. So my reaction, and, and I, in my whistleblower's manual, I say this is our normal reaction. You go, you operate in the system. You go to somebody in authority in the church, and you tell them about it. That's our first reaction. I, I went to the church hours yeah. up, and I said, look... Um, what am I to make of all this? These are stories. We have to take responsibility. I was told at every level of the church the exact same thing, like a lawyer had put the words in their mouth. Do not believe what the Indians are telling you. They're angry that we took their land. They're making up the stories. That was three years before mm. the first lawsuit. So the United Church was free to lie about everything because they weren't in court. And I was told right. to shut up. And as a matter of fact, I remember a guy, um, Art Anderson, who was a personnel officer for the United Church. He came to me. Uh, in the first six months I was there, because I began to invite these Native people into my church. We went from 20 to 100 people in the church, and uh, wow. some of these Natives were getting up. I had an open pulpit policy, and they were getting up and talking. Art Anderson visited me, you know, this kind of avuncular visit. And, yeah. and he took me aside, and he said, you know, you have a young family. These are his exact words. You have a young family to support, so I would be very careful about what you're doing right now. That's all he said. Mm. It was kind of like the wow. velvet in the in the in the uh, velvet glove over the steel fist approach, right? Like just the warning. Right. The warning always comes, and of course I didn't know what he meant, and I couldn't pull back. I knew that this was real, and I saw the effect in the community. I saw the huge rate of native suicide, the the poverty, the literally starvation going on in my own backyard. So I couldn't yeah. stop. No moral person would stop, right? Mm-hmm. And you, uh, so you mentioned. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay. I'm I'm glad you didn't stop. <laughs> you know, it's. Uh, I'm glad you didn't. Um, th- well, you know, there's a there's a testimony um, from one of those natives that you spoke with at the time um, that really stood out for me in um, murder in your book, Murder by Decree. And I realize that it's one of the same people that you um, you spoke about also in your book Fallen. So this is um, Harry Wilson. Yeah. And um, so he, his testimony just really stood out for me because he he speaks about the abuse that he suffered in uh, the Port Alberni um, residential school, but he also um, gave a testimony about finding a, a body, you know, at that time and reporting it, and um, nothing really seemed to be done about it. 
and that he was even transferred out of the school, so he, you know, he wouldn't have even really known what uh, happened while he was out of the school. Um, and then, you know, I noticed that he, um, there was an article about his testimony actually in in the mainstream news, and um, it just it it shows. Um, it shows, you know, in that decade after you um, were were listening to people and giving a voice, it shows you were really making an impact in creating this space for people, to, for First Nations people to tell their stories and, and let the truth be told. So maybe could you take us maybe into the, that next decade, you know, 1992 to say 2002, when you started to really listen to these stories and, and, and put them out there, um, you know, what happened next in your path. And I don't know if that's exactly when yep. when connections started to happen to Europe or not, but uh, maybe... After that, let's... but yeah, no, I can okay. definitely... It, it was a very, very hard decade because it was so much effort to get the most minimal thing out. Um, after, you know, the, the short story about all this is that for two and a half years I carried on at Port Alberni at St. Andrew's United Church, and because I was so successful in bringing people in, um, it didn't, the, the church higher-ups were watching me, but the local congregation loved what I was doing. I was filling up the church, and, and there were Native and poor people standing alongside rich white folks, and they, you know, they really felt that there was a big change happening. Port Alberni is like a, a southern U.S. town that would try to get blacks and whites together in the same congregation. Whites and natives had never come together in churches before, and there it was happening in our congregation. People thought it was a mm-hmm. miracle, and they loved it. But in uh, October 1994, I was at a presbytery gathering of all the ministers, and I heard a story about lies being told by church officials. Uh, a guy called Oliver Howard got up and he said, well, the a house of Indians want all their land back, and of course we can't give it back to them because it's owned by the church. I just met with some of the Ahousad elders that they're right out on the west coast of Vancouver Island, and they had told me that they had been trying to get land back that the missionaries had stolen and then sold off to logging companies, right, for a lot of money. The Ahousads Mm -hmm. had never seen a penny of it, of course. So I wrote this naive letter to the presbytery saying, hey, you know, it says according to the United Church policy, we have to take native land in our possession and give it back and not profit from stolen native land. So I just cited the church policy. I was out out on my derriere within a month of writing that letter. Because what I didn't know at the time was that it was part of a huge corporate acquisition. It was the biggest corporate deal in British Columbia history, where Weyerhaeuser, a big Seattle-based, is one of the largest logging companies in the world, had worked with the United Church to get this land in a deal with the British Columbia government. So I was stepping on a $1 billion-plus deal, and I didn't know it at the time. So I was removed quicker than you can imagine, uh, and blacklisted. I was told that unless I agreed to psychiatric evaluation, hence, mm-hmm. you know, implying I was crazy, retraining, even though I had two young children to support, retraining for, without pay for a year, if I didn't agree to that, I'd be defrocked immediately. And that was completely illegal under church rules. So the hammer came down immediately, and, and I didn't know later it was because of all this. But it was funny, after, um, not funny, but very indicative, that that same period of time, we, my wife and I were penniless, so we had to go move over to Vancouver. Uh, I was trying to retrain to get my PhD at the University of British Columbia. She was approached within a month of my firing, my wife Anne McNamee, and uh, she was told by the United Church officials that, 
look, he's never going to work in the province again. He's never going to get a job. If you want out, we'll help you with your divorce. That was told to her by uh, Art Anderson, John Jessamine, the United Church lawyer, uh, Foster Freed, the Presbyterian official. All of them sat down and told her that. And, right. um, you know, it was what you do with a whistleblower. You go to their wife, you go to the closest people to them, and turn them against them. And unfortunately, Anne agreed. Um, and I didn't know this until divorce court world. This all came out. Lost custody of both my children, and just they came down on me like a ton of bricks. In my, you know, it was shattering my life because what you do is you take away the livelihood and the family of a man, and he usually collapses, or a woman. And um, at the same time, I was going down to the healing centers because all of this hidden hand was at work. The first native survivors of these residential school death camps were beginning to gather and tell their stories, and mm-hmm. I went down there. And I began to share with them evidence that I had accumulated. And I, you know, that, that took us off on the next stage, which led to that meeting that you referred to at the beginning uh, in 1998, mm-hmm. where we held the first forum in, in Canada ever about the residential schools and murders, sterilization programs, all of that stuff began to be mentioned for the first time. Right. It was a huge turning point when, when that was, um, you know, put into the mainstream media and people were really waking up to what was going on. And I just want to acknowledge, you know, the suffering that you went through at that time. And, um, you know, it shows a lot of strength in your character that you were, you had the integrity to um, stand up to for what you believed in. And, you know, I'm sorry for your loss during that time. Um, but, but really grateful that you um, had steadfastness and, you know, continued to persevere through that. It's pretty well, incredible. I had to, you know, I really had to. And I remember, um, you know, realizing that, one day I've got to face my children. I've got to be able to look them in the eyes. I've got to look, be able to face those who depended on me. And I was mm-hmm. responsible. My culture had done this crime. You know, one of the part of the smear campaign that was put up by the RCMP and it's been active for many years over the internet has been that. Well, Kevin's trying to speak for Native people, and um, from the very beginning, I was addressing my own culture. I said, like a man has to address rape. Mm-hmm. White people have to address the genocide. We caused it. It was our invention. It came yeah. out of Europe. It hit us, though we're in Europe as well. You know, I, it came from a source in Rome eventually, if you trace it back, but we're all complicit in it. So I had to take responsibility, and, and I just thought it was the act of what a, anyone with a conscience would do. Right. That's where there's some commonality in our past, because um, I had to face similar types of uh, choices and make similar decisions on my path, you know, the more that I was learning and, and discovering and um, you know, I also faced persecution in, in certain ways, but yeah. the story isn't mine to tell at the moment, but I just, I acknowledge um, the commonality there. Right. Um, well, yeah. So, so yeah, you, you were really facing resistance kind of from every side in Canada. And, um, you know, I guess um, at, one, at one point you realized that this is not a, a Canadian issue, that this is connected. We started to mention, um, you know, the genocide has roots in Europe. And, and did you want to speak a little bit more about that connection? Yep, there's one final piece in that. Uh, the kind of the linking piece occurred in, in 1998, the same year of that meeting. We invited in a United Nations group called IRAM. We held a, the first public tribunal into the residential schools, June 1998, uh, in the east side of Vancouver, and there were UN observers there. There was um, indigenous representatives from all over North America came and heard the evidence. They filed a report. The United Nations buried it, of course. They did never acted on it under pressure from the Canadian government. 
And then the blacklisting came in and the bribes started coming in. The, the government set up what they called the Aboriginal Healing Fund, which was mm-hmm. money that any Native survivor of these death camps could get, but as long as they signed off legal action against the church and government. So it was used as a hush fund, really, to control people. Right. And the right. Assembly of First Nations, the government puppet chiefs, they all got on board with it. That's when the first smear campaigns began. But that's, I, I counteracted, you know, whenever I face this stuff, my reaction as kind of a born writer is to start writing books about it. So that's mm-hmm. when I wrote um, <laughs> Hidden from History, the Canadian Holocaust. It was my first book right after that. And it was one of 12 that I eventually wrote. And um, that really began to get international attention. And um, after we forced, we, we began to up the ante, like our native groups in Vancouver that, that were working with me. We had a whole network of mostly poor homeless natives who were working with me, who weren't part of the government-bought uh, Indian network, you know, in the, in the government system, yeah. uh, of the tribal councils and that. The, these poor native folks were going around with me and others to churches. We were, first we started protesting outside, and then we peacefully started occupying these churches during their services. That created mm-hmm. shockwaves. In Winnipeg, Toronto, and Vancouver, we began to do that. And it began to get national headlines in 2007, 2008. And we released our film, documentary film, Unrepentant, in 2007. That got seen by a Native member of Parliament called Gary Marasti. He stood up in Parliament after watching our film and said, when are these children going to get a proper burial? That same week, the Harper government announces they were going to hold a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So that's really the lever that got it all going. And um, after that, Canada was forced to issue this so-called apology, but then they started engaged in a major cover-up, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was designed to conceal the evidence, silence witnesses, and exonerate all the churches and government. They've never done any time. They've never gone to trial for any of this. That's what these so-called public inquiries do. And being blocked in that sense, that's when I went international, and we, I began to get invitations after the success of what we're doing, forcing that out. I began to get invitations from Ireland, uh, England especially, of survivors of mostly the Catholic Church who were, wanted to take the same kind of action, and that's when we, in 2010, we formed the International Tribunal in Crimes of Church and State. I see. You know, there's a metaphor that came to mind as you were sharing all of that. Um, you know, it's really, it, it's quite complex and it's quite, um, you know, there's a lot of details and a lot of things that happened all within a short period of time. Um, but it reminds me of, um, you know, if there's domestic abuse in a home, then um, people in the home try to, you know, the adults in the home will try to keep it a secret, you know, can silence it and they tell the children how to behave and what to say and what not to say and they, they cover it up so that their neighbors can't tell that there's abuse in the home. Right. Yep. <laughs> and um, if the children grow up and start to talk about it, then, you know, it starts to really shake things up and sometimes there'll be um, a kind neighbor or an understanding neighbor or uh, someone in the community that understands and believes and, and reaches out and, you know, can help to make some change for, for those children or start to make an impact on the, the family. So that metaphor came to mind when you're talking about how Canada responded to this. It's, you know, once they started to silence you and to have these cover-ups and uh, deception and public um, public uh, spin, spinning and all that sort of thing, um, you're getting invitations outside of Canada because... These are like the neighbors that are seeing the truth of what's going on and right. giving you, it, it sort of gave you the, the, the way to, um, to 
to expand and to, to grow because outside of Canada, it was easier for people to, to believe you because it wasn't in their own back door, backyard. Exactly, and that's a brilliant metaphor because it's exactly that situation. Nobody can look at the crumbs within their own family, their own nation. There's just this huge denial. Like what I often hear from white Canadians is, okay, we know now the children died, but not all the churches were bad. They really had good motives, didn't they? Well, I mean, you know, it's that same thing of, well, if we're nice to the father or the mother, they're not going to beat us so much. You know, that, that whole notion. <laughs> that's and, right. uh, you know, it's it's the attitude of a, of, yeah. of a crushed personality as opposed to somebody who's reclaimed their own identity and say, no, it's all wrong when that happens, and I can stand on my own identity. I'm not asking for justice for anyone. I'm reclaiming that. And that's what's the success of what we're doing. We never asked for anything. We said this system is fundamentally wrong. Uh, if it allows us to go on, the courts are complicit. We need a new system in place. And that's one of the reasons we set up the International Common Law Court of Justice and said, ultimately, yeah. citizens have the right, when the courts and the governments and every institution is involved in, in genocidal crimes and ongoing crimes against children, we have the right to convene our own courts, make our own citizen arrests, reclaim our communities for the sake of our children. So that's really what inspired that whole common law court movement out of the, the tribunal. Right. Makes sense. You can see yeah. um, the the... You can see how hmm, can see a lot of things. <laughs> there's so many, yeah. there's so many things I want to say right now, and I don't know which one to choose. <laughs> well, anyone is fine. That's what's good about a dialogue. Sure, Go for it. sure. Well, you know, when we're just talking about the 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 tribunal, and it just leads me to be thinking about how important the solution here is about self governance, and how the tribunal really helps people to be. Um, we, see, we, we, in, in the growth that we are achieving through this awareness, we're reclaiming our minds, we're reclaiming our culture, our own, our own sense of, of being a human being. Um, and there's a fundamental truth about we're, us being equal, you know, and um, equality between men and women, equality between the, every race. And what I, what I see from the tribunal is that this is, um, this is a way that, our rights can be truly um, honored. And um, I, I really, I, I see the wisdom in having something, having a, a law, a court system that's set up outside of the court system that's already established because we can't fix what's, what's there. We sort of have to let that crumble. And then if we really want to move forward towards this peaceful civilization that we're envisioning, we really need something altogether different. We need to build something brand new. Right, exactly. Um, so that's sort of where I'm coming from, but if you could fill in the details or just sort of expand on, on that. Yeah, that's very important because it's true that the status quo generally is always doing everything on, it, our, uh, on their own terms. It's kind of like an energy system where you have to hand over your energy to a system in order to get uh, a few crumbs back from it. But in so doing that, you're actually making the situation worse. Like in Canada, um, the Crown ruled very early on that they would not allow any claim of genocide into the Canadian courts. That happened in, in British Columbia and Alberta and Nova Scotia and the Supreme Courts there. Really? We tried. The, the thing is, we went through the legal route for, for a number of years. I remember this classic uh, example of it. Harry Wilson, who you mentioned earlier, he and his cousin mm -hmm. Dennis Talio had both found bodies of murdered children on the grounds of the Alberni Residential School. 
And by reporting that, they were then put in the psychiatric unit in an Indian hospital where they were then experimented on to try to make them forget what they had found. Electric shocks, drugs, the whole bit during the 1960s and 70s. And Harry uh, and Dennis both had that in their court statement. They went to their lawyer, Dave Patterson. He was going to bring their case in the B.C. Supreme Court. I look at their court statement, and any reference to a dead child is being removed. And we went to oh, really? we went to him and Dave Patterson. We said, why have you taken out the statement about finding dead children? When you're eight years old and you find a corpse, that's pretty traumatic. That's a factor in, in yeah. rewarding compensation, right? And yeah, of course. Here's a, and here's a quote from the lawyer. I am an officer of the court, and there's some issues I'm not allowed to raise. And I said, like the criminal culpability, culpability of the Crown for murder, and he wouldn't answer me. So obviously these lawyers, in, in Crown lawyers, they take an oath of loyalty to the very genocidal institution we're putting on trial. So naturally mm-hmm. you, can't, you cannot get justice in a system like that. Uh, you, need to, right. you, you need to have what's never existed in Canada, and that's the rule of law. Like in theory in the United States, where the people... And the founding fathers of America were very clear about this. The people have to have control of the courts through the jury system. The grand jury and the common law jury system, they formulate the law. A judge does not have the right in America, in theory, to do what they can do all the time in Canada, which is rewrite court records, dismiss uh, cases, intimidate witnesses. That's just, you know, the old monarchical system of operating. Um, And so we're really standing on tradition. It's not particularly radical. We're just reclaiming that whole common law tradition. Hmm. That makes sense. Well, you know, and, and it's also the only way to get... I mean, I, the number of people I've worked with who've, who've gone through the system, it's so rigged, it's so designed to crush people. Um, uh, you know, to get the ma- maximum $10,000 for a lifetime of, of suffering, that's all you're allowed in the, in the, the, the recon- so-called reconciliation program. They gave any of your survivor $10,000 if they could prove they suffered these things. So I've been to these sessions that, you know, you have to sit in front of lawyers for the church who are trying to break you. They're saying, no, your father raped you at three. That's why you suffered, isn't it? Nothing happened in the church. They did everything possible to break these people. And then they have a thing called the, the meat chart. The lawyers rank points. Like if you're ainly raped, you get five points. If you're friendly raped, you get ten points. Count up the points and then oh give you God. money. They give you money, and then you sign off any legal action. So what you're doing by that is you're becoming shamed and humiliated again. You're saying, I sold out my whole story for a few bucks. And oh, my gosh. It's designed to crush people again, and it's evil. It's so yeah. destructive, and that's what they call justice in Canada. Mm. I wasn't aware. I wasn't aware that's what they were going through. Oh, constantly. And then now, if you speak, I mean, I know people in the downtown east side of Vancouver now, this whole nonsense, you know, they used to call it truth and reconciliation. They've dropped the truth word. All you see now is reconciliation, which is the, they used to call it assimilation or civilizing the savage. Now, no one is allowed to speak against reconciliation because you're causing division, you see. Nobody, it's yeah. another psychological weapon to keep everybody quiet and accept everything that's gone on. I said at a forum once, uh, how does reconciliation help 50,000 dead children or the people being trafficked today or the people losing their land to big multinationals? It's nonsense. It's a way for, for the, the perpetrators to feel good about themselves and keep everything the same. And so mm-hmm. this is a reality we face, and unfortunately all the Native leadership is on board with this nonsense. Hmm. 
speechless. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm speechless. It's really it's shocking to uh, to really um, to really get a grasp on you know what the challenges that are there. Maybe you know what can you um, give some highlights as to some of the lessons that you that you learned through that, or what what were some of the um, the sort of victories when you went through all that uh, that time of oh. crisis. There's a lot of victories. And, and, you know, the beautiful thing about these victories, Rachel, they weren't the result of a government grant. They weren't the result of somebody coming in and, and giving us a lot of media attention or help. It was created from the bottom up. And this is what's so especially uh, miraculous about it. And why I hold up the, the reason I wrote the book Fallen is I wanted to hold up these four, you know, frontline guys. They were just homeless folks in Vancouver who suffered horribly, somehow found their voice and created you know, the, the, the pressure to bring this out. And the reason they did is, yes. and here's an important lesson, that Sun Tzu in The Art of War says all the time, it doesn't matter how big you are, what your forces are. If your finger is on the strategic heart of an enemy, if you're threatening what they love, they have to respond. It doesn't matter if, even if you're one person. It's your, mm-hmm. your consistency, your pressure, and whether, where you are strategically. And that's, we found when we started occupying those churches, they panicked because we were in, we were threatening the two things that churches and any corporation operate by, their public image and their money. And if you threaten either right. one of those, you've got them in the corner. And we proved that in practice. So that was a miracle to see it unfold and what we've created, even though now the government and others are claiming credit for it. Like, oh, it's because we mm-hmm. decided to be nice to Indians all of a sudden. No, it's because of that direct grassroots pressure. And so I say to people, we always have to keep that up. Because it doesn't matter how abused you've been, how poor you are, any one of us has the power to choose. Will I cooperate in this evil or will I do something about it? We all have that God-given power. And it's mm-hmm. the recovery of that power. It was what's beautiful. I, uh, just another little anecdote about William Coombs, one of the guys who I wrote about. He couldn't walk anywhere near a Catholic church. He couldn't even see a cross without getting physically ill because they used to stretch him on a, on a rack at the Kamloops uh, Catholic Residential School where he saw those ten children abducted by Queen Elizabeth, never seen again. Brother Murphy and the other Catholic priests would put him on a rack and sodomize him every night and use electric shock on him. He saw a crucifix above him, and he couldn't even see a cross without getting ill. The day we occupied Holy Rosary Cathedral in 2008, he was there with us, walking through the church with a big smile on his face. And I thought, how the hell can William do this? And Mm. he he was handing out flyers to people, talking to the people... And he wasn't afraid of these priests who were livid at what we were doing, of course. And I asked him why, you know, like, how were you able to do that? He said, I didn't want to let you guys down. I saw you going to the church. I didn't want to be left out. I couldn't let you down. And it was that higher loyalty, right? Mm-hmm. That higher loyalty. We're doing this together. And he saw above his own pain. He had that higher fixed point where he had forgotten yeah. about himself, and he was living for, for others and for the cause. And that's what lifts us all up. And that's right. the miracle. And believe it or not, he began, he stopped drinking for a few weeks after that, for the first time in like 20 or more mm-hmm. years. Because he had that inner life. He had recovered his manhood and his ability to to act, to do something. Yeah. That's a powerful story. Me. Oh, my God, I get tears every time I tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. Well, when you're talking about the grassroots um, pressure, you know, and what an impact that makes, I thought maybe we can... Um, Explore that a little bit more, yeah. because I think that you said when you were occupying churches, you branched out into Toronto and Ontario at that time. Is that right? 
Yeah, we had groups there, people I'd known in my, like I had done a lot of lecturing across the country, and I would make contacts and form groups in different country, in different cities. And uh, okay. Winnipeg and Toronto, we had groups. They were called Friends and Relatives of the Disappeared, were the groups, and they conducted the church actions. Yeah. Okay. And then is that what brought the awareness of um, Mushhole and um, the situation in Brantford? Yeah. Or um, how did that come into your radar? Well, after we formed the tribunal, um, the, there was a group of 10 Mohawk elders in Brantford, Ontario. It was the site of the oldest Indian school in Canada, the Mohawk Institute, set up at the Church of England in the 1830s. And they invited me in. They said, look, we know there's a mass grave of children right there. We know eyewitnesses saw the burials happening. We'd like you to come in and get some technically competent people, do a ground survey, find out where these graves are. We want these children brought home for a proper burial. We want forensic mm-hmm. analysis done to find out how they died. They were taking the bull by the horns. Now these right. Mohawk elders had had a history of action. They had they had been they were the ones doing the land reclamation, stopping the destruction of their land uh, in the area given to them traditionally uh, around Hamilton, between Hamilton and London, it was called the Haldeman Tract. And they had already had that long experience of going up against the government. So they invited me in. Bill and Cheryl Squire, other Mohawk elders invited me in. And it was classic what happened. We found evidence. We went in there with trained archaeologists, a forensic uh, specialist. We did the ground-penetrating radar survey. We did several excavations and found bones that the Smithsonian Institute in Washington confirmed. Uh, the the uh, Don Ortner, the uh, pathologist there, said 90% certain it was bones of a, a young female that we had found. Charred, uh, burned, and cut up. But uh, definitely the remains. School uniform buttons tangled in the roots of trees because they would always bury mm-hmm. trees over the graves of the children to, cut, to conceal them. Um, all of that came, came down, and then the government moved in, shut it down, started an enormous smear campaign that you'll still see up on the Internet, making it look like the Mohawks never supported us. They bought off or scared off all the elders. But in the wake of that, we took that evidence, we took it to Europe, and it was a big part of the, the evidence that actually in 2013... Uh, convicted Pope Benedict, forced his resignation and three other cardinals because of their direct involvement in not only that crime, but in, in you know, authorizing child trafficking all over the world. That was the first common law court case that a lot of people have heard about. Right. That's quite a victory. Oh, my God. It was amazing. I mean, the very <laughs> fact that, you know, well, we had, the good thing about that, Rachel, was that the Spanish government had looked at our evidence. And for people listening, if you want to bring a human rights case, go to the Spanish government, because they claim universal jurisdiction over any human rights matter. You can try it in a Spanish court. We worked with um, several judges there, and they issued five days before Pope Benedict resigned on February 11, 2013. Um, the Spanish government issued a diplomatic note to the uh, cardinal, uh, who also resigned, um, uh, Bertoni. He stepped down. And the diplomatic note said if the Pope comes to Spain, he might be liable for arrest because of the evidence we've seen in the common law court docket. So it shows mm-hmm. that, that any court can act on these common law verdicts. It gives incredible power. If you can make a Pope in Rome step down, the sky's the limit, people, right? We can act on this. And yeah. this is a lot of the work I've done since then, training people how to do that and take action in their own communities. Right. Could you share more about that? The Sort of the grassroots efforts and uh, training and what's the yeah, solution for, for, well, for today? 
Well, yeah, it's in the books, uh, especially the, the common law training manual, uh, which you can see at Amazon.com. It's called uh, Establishing the Reign of Natural Liberty, a uh, common law training manual. And it gives you the steps, not only the philosophy and the, the, the legitimation behind why you can do this, but uh, the steps to, to employ in uh, creating a, uh, what's called a court of record um, mm-hmm. with a jury. It's a jury-based court. The right of citizen prosecutors to try cases, to, to, to establish citizen sheriffs in your community, to serve the warrants, to make the arrests. But it's a big step because it means taking power back into your own hands. It means regaining your own mind. And we go around conducting those training workshops, uh, not just on the issue of child abuse. Like, for example, last year we were in Sacramento, California, working with a group that wanted to stop uh, the smart meters. Uh, Child trafficking is a big issue we hear about, but corruption in the courts, police harassment, um, tax fraud. I mean, all of this is, you know, in other words, crimes by the state, (laughs) the church, the corporate sector. That's, That's what we hear again and again from people. So I see a real awakening happening and a willingness for people to take that next step and say, yeah, we are the power, we can reclaim, we not only can, but we have to reclaim that power now, you know, if we want a future for our kids. Right. Well, what you're saying there, it's um, reminding me of something that you wrote in the book. Um, You've got uh, your book called Truth Teller's Shield, the manual for whistleblowers and hellraisers. Yeah. And... There's one section you say here where you're just talking about the importance of learning to be alone and finding your your new family. And, um, you know, you mentioned that there's illusions that we have that um, we think that once, once, well, well, actually, I'll read what you wrote here, if you don't don't mind. One of the habitual illusions that even the most hardened truth tellers experience is the lingering belief that one day the world will rally to the truth and they will be vindicated and welcomed back in from the cold, but the truth is bitterly different. In practice, whistleblowers invariably invariably end up in a form of permanent exile from their former life. Learning to be alone to that degree is never easy for most of us, since we've been taught to look for some ultimate affirmation from society as a whole. Frankly, you can't forget about that ever happening once you go up against powerful enemies. But on the other hand, new life always emerges from the ashes of before. In the course of your long struggles, you will encounter a new kind of family, people much like you, but often so hardened by their long night that they are unable to long, any longer reach out and find community of like-minded souls. People you never suspect will also appear from out of nowhere to offer you help and support. In these small ways, you will learn to endure. So, yeah, I just, I really like what you wrote there because I think that if there's any pattern that I see um, among whistleblowers and truth tellers is that um, when persecution comes, you know, you learn to, um, you learn to think for yourself and you learn to seek out the truth for yourself and you realize there's a a new way of being and sort of this new family kind of emerges from, um, you know, from out of the ashes, <laughs> a new, a new self and a new, yeah. a new way of looking at things and, and that's the, I, uh, I like what you wrote there. It's very inspiring. I wondered if you wanted to elaborate a little bit. Well, it's, it's like a, uh, a lot of this is biographical because that's a lesson I had to learn. And uh, it's really part of a transformation. You see, we're not into healing or restoring the old. We're into transformation, which is that in the course of getting attacked and battered, you realize, well, this is to break away ties to something old so that something new can begin. And um, mm-hmm. I'm glad I'm not part of the system, either 
you know, by my association or by my, the way I think, I'm glad I'm breaking away from it because there's something new emerging, and I, I would not be able to receive that new if I was still attached in some way to the old. So I do think that there's a reason for our suffering. It's to prepare us for something better and something, right. you know, that we can't recognize till we go through the suffering. So what I often say to people is you cannot give up hope. You cannot give up. Native people were telling me that all the time. You can't give up, Kevin. We can't do it for ourselves right now, but you've got to, you've got to keep doing this because it's more... They didn't even give a reason, but now I think I see why. Because, and my, the voices of my own ancestors, like Peter and others, were ta- talking to me at the time. Not, not like I was hearing voices, but in my heart, saying yes. there's something epic going on here, because as there's centuries and centuries of this, millennia of this, genocide and suffering and degradation of humanity, it's now time for that to end, and there's a shift happening. But it's being created by us and the way we're transformed in the course of our own struggles. So... Um, that's, I think, the hidden jewel in all of this that, that we keep uncovering all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really is. It's a hidden jewel. I like that that statement. Yeah, so, you know, it's a matter of encouraging each other and not giving up. Um, if you do something once or ten times, system can co-opt it. But if you keep, if you're persistent, you're one person, you're a threat, and they will take it, notice of it, because not even so much as what we're doing, but the example we're being for other people. They do not want others to be inspired by our example, so they have to lie about us, they have to smear us, they have to do everything possible to get people who are afraid of who we are, you know, so they won't copy us. Yeah, we've tried, you know, um, in the past 45 minutes or so, you know, we've looked over, we've tried to summarize 25 years into just a (laughs) few short minutes, um, you know, but you've really done uh, an excellent job with highlighting some key um, key moments, and personally, but also you know politically and and very publicly. Um, you know, and you've really shared some of the major crises and losses. Um, you know, was there anything that that I that I didn't ask that you wanted to add, or things well, that you wanted fact, to um, to touch on? I got a email now from a listener who says, "Please have her back on next week." This is brilliant. I want to hear more. <laughs> so I guess that's a formal oh. invitation. <laughs> Let's carry it on next Thank week. Thank you. Um, Thank you. And, yeah, and I, I, um, I did, I'm very impressed, too, by your how clearly you get things, Rachel, and, and your, your presence online. So I, I think it would be great if we did this again next week. But I, um, I'm all aware at a really personal level of the worst thing that can happen to us is just passing. Uh, I used to, in my dark moments, I used to feel that because of all the lies being said about me and the fact that I couldn't see my kids very often because of the stupid court order and the other attacks, I I wanted my children not to be hurt by this stuff. And so in a way, I kept them isolated. I didn't tell them everything. Now, uh, they're, they're amazing women. They're amazingly strong and, and women because of the way I persisted, because of them as well, their inherent greatness, you know, that I've seen in them. But... Claire, my eldest, is a midwife now. She's 28. Uh, Eleanor, my younger, is up fighting forest fires in the British Columbia now as, as part of the Red Cross, where she's organizing mm-hmm. disaster relief. I mean, you know, chip off the old block, but she has to be in there yes. fighting all the time to help people. I realize now, if we stand in who we are, even though we think we're losing our children in the short run, it doesn't happen. You stay true, and I, you know, I'm, I'm sure you as a mother can speak to this too. 
you stay true with your children, and they will come back. Even though it looks like the relationships are being harmed, the lies are being told, you know, you stay true to who you are, and they'll stay true to who they are. Yes. That's so, that's so true. So true. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that your daughters are, are um, happy and well and that the relationship is strong. That's great well, you know, it is, it is strong because I know that they knew. I remember I got a, when Eleanor was in London a few years ago, she wrote me and she said on Father's Day, and she said, um, um, I know, Dad, that you always worry that you weren't there enough for us. Um, but the fact that you were there all the time in your poverty, it made it all the more special for Claire and I. And we love mm-hmm. you so much for it. You know, so, I mean, when you, when you have that, you're able to die happy, right? Knowing you've done the right yeah. thing. And I compare other relatives I have and how they have not stood by their own integrity and their lost souls. You know, they may have a lot of money and everything. They may have a lot of worldly success, but they look aged and, de- and depleted. And at least I didn't go through that. At least I held on to myself. And that's what we can all do. It doesn't matter what our circumstance or level of abuse in our life. We're not disabled when we stay true to our own heart. So, and we know what's right, you know, and act on it. So anyway, mm-hmm. that's um, my, maybe that's a good way to sign off because it's five minutes too. And I, I want to end sure. on um, Farewell to the Crown, which I think is an appropriate song. And Rachel, thank you for your brilliant interview and, and very heartfelt questions. And please come back next week, and we'll carry this on. And, and w- ask listeners to send in questions they might have about this 25-year struggle and where we go from here and what things we're facing now that we need to help each other with. Do you have anything you want to that say? That sounds before, great. Anything else you want to say before you sign off? Oh, no. I just want to say thank you so much for the opportunity, and, and I look forward to, uh, to, to more. Okay, sister. And for the listeners, murderbydecree.com, itccs.org, right to us, Republic of Kanata at gmail.com. Carry it on, brothers and sisters. We'll be back next week. Please tune in again. Thank you.